Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Well, let's get into it then, Roger, shall we? It could be just a few days now until we know about the shape of the government's plans to move the UK out of lockdown. Uh, Thursday is when we get an update. We're also hearing Sunday as a possible date. So within the week, we should have a better idea just how things look. But there are already some indications. We're talking about staggered work times for businesses, exam years first back into the uh, the classrooms, a mechanism for reimposing lockdown in areas that show surging cases. Lots of rumblings out there in the papers. Indeed. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister's message to a global virtual conference on funding for vaccines. Getting a vaccine, he says, is the endeavour of our lives and the only way to beat the crisis. And uh, the Isle of Wight's going to be in the focus as well, because it's going to be the testing ground for the planned track and trace system the government wants to introduce. It's going to be tested there next week and will involve a smartphone app to inform people if they've been near to someone who has developed the virus. There'll also be other mechanism for tracking and tracing, but the government definitely thinks that is the way to go. Now, one of the key issues facing the government in dealing with the question of when to lift this lockdown is the psychological damage as well as the social and economic impact of it all. For many people, isolation during lockdown has exacerbated an already major problem. I'm talking about loneliness. Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is the man who's taken over as chair of the all-party parliamentary group on loneliness, Neil O'Brien, OBE, Conservative MP for Harborough, Oadby and Wigston. Neil, welcome to the programme. Let's talk about this issue first of loneliness. How far do you think the lockdown has actually affected it? So the whole problem of loneliness, uh, which was there before the coronavirus, uh, has been made even worse because, of course, huge numbers of people are now having to self-isolate. And if you don't have closer friends or family, or if you're not good at using technology, that can mean that people are seriously put off and at risk of um, being very isolated or lonely. Um, Even before the crisis, um, the Red Cross had estimated there was something like 9 million people in the UK who were frequently lonely. So there was a big problem already. But of course, coronavirus has made it much more severe. Uh, are we just talking about the elderly here, people who, who, who have lost family and end up living on their own? Or is this a wider problem than that? It's a much wider problem than just older people. It's true that uh, older people are probably the biggest uh, group of people who are at risk of being isolated or lonely. And then, of course, all across uh, Western countries, that uh, group of older people is a, a growing group. 
So the problem of loneliness is getting much bigger. But there are other groups of people who are particularly likely to be uh, affected by loneliness. Maybe it's uh, young mothers who are just staying at home after having a kid or uh, refugees and other people who are relatively new to the country. But of course, ultimately, uh, loneliness and isolation can affect absolutely anybody, uh, even very surprising people. So um, it's a problem that's growing. But the good thing, I suppose, that we've seen during the crisis is that as well as there being a bigger problem, there's also more people stepping up to try and help. And there's been a real flourishing of community groups, voluntary action locally. And I hope that some of that can be sustained after the crisis uh, so that we go on tackling the problem of loneliness. It's a funny question, I suppose, Neil, but have you yourself ever suffered from loneliness? I suppose when I was younger, I probably would have done sometimes. And uh, even people who are in you know busy workplaces like MPs, you can feel lonely in a crowd. It doesn't mean that uh, people don't feel lonely if they uh, if they don't have deep friendships. So it really is something that can uh, can affect anybody. And certainly, my wife, when when she had our our, our first our daughter, um, was at home, and it really brought home to me how you can be. You know, if you're looking after young children, it can be very uh, lonely if you're just stuck with um, a young child and it's difficult to get out. So it's, it's a thing that can affect anybody. And interestingly, research over the last couple of years has shown that there's a huge uh, link between the mental health effects of loneliness and some physical health effects. Because um, one study finds that uh, being persistently lonely is as bad as your health as smoking a packet of cigarettes a day. It has all kinds of bad uh, effects on everything from Alzheimer's to heart disease, all kinds of different uh, problems. So it's, it, there are good reasons why governments around the world are getting interested in this problem and how they can catalyse social action to tackle it. That, that's pretty stark. Well, I mean, lo- looking at the lockdown more broadly then, how do you think the government needs to be looking at this and starting to lift measures? We know we're expecting to hear something within the course of the week, uh, but, but what would you like the details to look like? Well, obviously, the more detail the government can give, the better, but we have to also be realistic about um, uh, this being quite a gradual process. And the key is to crush down this virus to a low level so that um, we are fighting uh, sporadic outbreaks rather than starting from having a high level of uh, infection in the population. So uh, as, as Boris Johnson, the prime minister, said the other day, you know, it's like uh, kind of we managed to wrestle the mugger to the ground, but we're still at a very dangerous uh, point. So people can't relax their guard uh, too much yet. But I do expect that in the coming weeks we'll see uh, more details coming out of government about what kinds of institutions might open uh, at what point and what kind of tests they'll be applying to decide when it's safe to go back to doing different things. Because there's a lot of pressure in all this, as you know, Neil. I mean, I'm sure where you are in Harborough, probably local business people are putting pressure on you and saying, we need to get things back to work again. I mean, what's the kind of conversations you're having? Funnily enough, I uh, am not actually finding a lot of local businesses saying things like that. I'm seeing a lot of people recognising that there's no point in uh, some kind of premature relaxation. If all that does is mean that we have a second wave and the breaks have to go on again, uh, really soon. So actually, funnily enough, I think people are taking quite a kind of far-sighted view of uh, the problem. Sure, everybody wants to get back to normal uh, as soon as possible, but they also want to protect lives. Most people have got some experience of people being affected by this uh, disease. And people want um, not just a, a fast exit from lockdown, they also want a, a secure and lasting um, exit from it. So 
Actually, I think people locally certainly have been taking quite a kind of far-sighted view. Uh, what about Brexit? I, I dread to bring it up again, but I mean, businesses are going to want some sort of an update on where things are. Given that the time is now diminishing and the government is still so adamant it doesn't want an extension, don't they need to be uh, sort of updated on, on, on the situation, especially given the economy is going to take such a hit from the coronavirus? Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a discussion about um, uh, uh, Brexit at some point once we get out of the worst um, phase of um, handling the, the coronavirus crisis. Um, I'm sure that we'll be expecting involvement and an update on how the discussions on the free trade deal are going and um, what progress is being made. Um, I know that various types of talks have been continuing despite everything, but I'm sure they'll accelerate as um, we start to come out of this, uh, the most deep part of this uh, coronavirus crisis. For that, because that's the problem, and we're moving quite rapidly towards a moment of uh, of decision in June where it has to be either there is an extension or there isn't, and a lot of people are fearing that things will just fall by the wayside almost by, by, by bad luck. Yeah, I don't think, I'm sure there'll be a lot of focus on uh, on that moment, and people will be asking the kind of questions you just asked I'm sure there's no chance that it will just happen um, uh, without a kind of clear decision. Um, I mean, ultimately, some of these decisions have got to be made at some point, uh, as long as the EU and UK sides are able to function properly and um, have um, you know, all the people they need for their negotiating teams, and there's no particular reason why things like that should not continue. Um, so, you know, we need to, to, to make a decision and eventually get to some certainty about where things are going. So, um I'm sure that there won't be any kind of um, uh, stumbling or forgetting that we're, you know, passing a deadline. It will be, there will be a conscious decision about that, and I'm sure there will be debates about it in Parliament in the coming months. Uh, and what about Parliament? I see there's another week where there's no real legislation being tabled. We've not got that remote voting system. Big things like the trade bill, like the immigration bill, that that, that need to be discussed at some point. Is Parliament not failing in its its duty to pass legislation and, and the opposition to hold the government to account, given that we don't have this crucial infrastructure yet? Well, funnily enough, just before we um, spoke, I cast my uh, second uh, virtual vote. Um, and again, it went really smoothly. So I think that the initial teething problems were with virtual voting uh, being gradually ironed out. There's nothing to stop us from, from doing some of these things um, remotely. Uh, virtual question times and debates are now happening. Uh, online. It's a bit strange if you're used to sitting in the House of Commons, but we're all getting used to doing things remotely and doing things in a slightly unusual way. So um, there's no particular reason Parliament can't um, there's things that Parliament can't debate or uh, discuss. Um, and we are, the technology is getting better and better about, um, and we're probably going to get, I think, probably to the point where we cast some um, uh, remote votes for real fairly soon. So um, uh, I don't think there's anything that Parliament can't do uh, if we set our mind to it. Well, Neil, just take us inside there, because I think a lot of people are fascinated. You you did a sort of virtual vote just now, you were saying, or you managed to, to vote. How does that voting process work in the virtual parliament? Yeah. Because obviously you're used to walking you, through you, lobbies you, in a very old-fashioned way. Exactly. So you um, uh, you log on to the parliament intranet uh, with your secure details, and you then... Uh, when there's a vote, it, it tells you a little screen pops up and you choose whether you're going to vote yes or no to something. And then very sensibly, it asks you if you want to confirm your vote, press, press the wrong button, because um, obviously you can't walk through the wrong lobby by mistake, but you can press the wrong button by mistake. Uh, and then um, having chosen which way you're going to go, you get a you know confirmation message and then an email and the 
it all works very smoothly as far as I can see. A few colleagues um, struggled with it at first at firewall issues and stuff like that, but that seems to be getting solved. So I don't think it's long before we're all going to be doing these virtual votes. I don't think there'll be too many. I think there'll be where votes could have been triggered on quite small things in the past. I think people will yeah. uh, not, not do that maybe while we're in kind of virtual mode. But um, uh, I've been quite um, pleased and impressed by the Parliament's um, technology people um, stepping up to make all these things work. And they've worked more smoothly than I thought. I mean, the question times right. uh, in a virtual format have actually gone. I thought it would be chaos like a conference call with everyone you know, failing to mute themselves or kind of mess. But. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Roger, where do we start? Well, we start in Ireland because Ireland's moved closer to forming a new government. The Green Party has agreed to enter formal talks with the country's two traditional major parties. The February election failed to produce a clear winner and progress to reach an agreement's been slow as the country grapples with the coronavirus crisis. But talks with the Green Party, of course, could still break down. We could be back to square one again. Mm, always an option. Then bringing it back here, rail union leaders say they have severe concerns about any moves to increase train services as part of the expected easing of the economic lockdown. The three main rail unions have written to the Prime Minister warning that increasing services would send out a mixed message that it's OK to travel by train. Aslef, RMT and TSSA say this mixed messaging could be dangerous and lead to the public flouting the rules on travel and work. They add they will not accept new working patterns that put the lives of railway workers and passengers at risk. Now, some big companies in London might be breathing a sigh of relief because some of the most influential investors are giving those companies extra time to find new board members because of the crisis. Legal and General Investment Management have told Bloomberg they're going to allow London-listed companies an additional 12 months to replace directors coming to the end of their recommended tenures. Companies affected could include the wireless giant Vodafone, also the packaging producer DS Smith, because their chairmen are close to the maximum nine-year length of service laid out in the UK's guidebook for strong governance. Right, well, let's bring it back then. The Prime Minister unveiling plans sometime this week for lifting the lockdown. The FT reports on some of the draft proposals for workplaces, which include a curbing of hot desking, staff canteen closures, uh, introducing staggered shifts and two metres social distancing where applicable. So let's get into this with Ian Anderson, Executive Chairman at Cicero AMO. Uh, Ian, I suppose the, the whole point of this is to unlock the economy, to get us going a little bit again. But then the risk, of course, is we get a second wave. Is that going to be avoidable? Because if I'm seeing people getting on trains, people going back to workplaces, it sounds like hotbeds for spreading the virus. Well, this is big, big concern that policymakers do have. Now, later this week, um, 
the SAGE committee, that's the key committee certainly here in the UK that has been um, assessing the scientific um, evidence, the balance between um, lockdown and opening up, um, the essential question that they have on their desk uh, this week. Now, that, that is due to meet um, on Thursday, and I think we're going to get um, the Prime Minister uh, telling uh, the nation how the lockdown is going to be opened up. We're expecting that now on Sunday, but every business I talk to uh, is you know, really engaged right now uh, on that issue for their staff, for their customers, um, and indeed want to hear from government as quickly as possible. I suppose one of the issues in this, Ian, though, is, I mean, if, if they do go back to work, they're going to obviously want, as you say, to protect their workers. They might want to have uh, personal protective equipment, PPE. In fact, they could end up, I suppose, competing with the NHS for, for gloves and masks and, and overalls and all that kind of thing. I mean, this is one of the concerns. And some kind of companies I'm working with right now, Roger, are very, very, very um, kind of concerned about you know, ensuring that uh, people can come back to work safely, um, but they, yeah, they don't take resources away from the NHS at, uh, at the same time. Now, we clearly need to hear from government as to how we want to tackle this, but it's very, very important. I mean, the one thing that is also going on is actually uh, businesses surveying their own people because the message of stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives has been really drummed into people so effectively that there is a concern about whether or not actually people will want to be able to return, particularly in some of the big conurbations, uh, London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, etc., where people need to get on mass transit system. Well, listen, I mean, this is a Conservative Party that is really, really good at getting a simplistic message out and, and letting it take hold. Do you think they can reverse the stay at home message with something else really snappy? I mean, it, it, it seems like such an uphill struggle. But if any political operation in recent history can do it, it seems like this one. Well, I think there is a good chance they can do it. I, I, you know, I mean, reflecting on the last six, eight weeks, you know, initially um, there were quite a few mixed messages. It did take about a week or so um, for the government's um, communications effort, I think, to work more, uh, more crisply, if you like, with that stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives um, idea that is in our heads. It's really, I think, going to be uh, the personal imprimatur of the prime minister himself that is going to have to be all over this uh, when as i say on sunday we expect him to kind of tell britain how it's going to be able to get uh, back to work he showed in the election you know his his kind of personality in a way does connect the fact he's been through the virus um, himself i think they're going to have to use the prime minister himself to communicate uh, the, the the message about returning uh, to work Ian, I mean, one of the issues has clearly been about the transport system. You mentioned that earlier on. We now seem to be, in a way, what seems almost an old-fashioned row between the unions and the Conservative government over the extent to which they can do this and still keep people safe, not least, of course, the people who work on the public transport systems, which, uh, you know, it, it does seem, as I say, a bit of an echo of the past, but there are some real issues of safety here. Oh, no, there's some really important issues of safety. And again, you know, th thinking particularly about our our major business centres, our major um, economic centres. So, you know, this is going to have to be balanced. I mean, certainly the, the, the thing that is um, starting to become clear is not everybody is going to be able 
to return to work at once. I, I mean, beyond that, uh, actually, um, there is also a sense that are we ever going to return um, in the way that we did before? You know, li- listening to actually, um, you know, some of our biggest um, uh, businesses just in the past two or three weeks, they're starting to reevaluate how much office space they need. Uh, does everybody need to be uh, sat at a desk? in an office, uh, huge changes to the structure of the UK economy coming out as a result of this. And as the lockdown is lifted, we'll see those uh, kind of come to bear. But, but it's also an issue of safety for passengers. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of airline bosses tell us that you just can't socially distance on a plane and I wager that the situation is very similar for trains. Are, are we going to see some rail services just not run? I'm thinking of so many that are still uh, under, uh, under the control of companies within franchises. It's just not going to be profitable for them to be running these services if they, if they can't get enough people on board. Well, I mean, it's not just mass transport. It's also the hospitality industry, too. You know, uh, kind of the numbers I've seen is that, you know, you need to have a restaurant about 60, 70 percent full. You need to have planes about 60 or 70 percent full. So, you know, we're starting to see from some of our major companies who are who are talking you know, quite anxiously to government right now about, um, you know, what the structure of their industries can actually look like. And all of this is taking place just on the day when governments are trying to uh, bring together um, uh, the scientific community, uh, the investor community, to try and invest in, in and, and, and speed up the chase for the vaccine. It's only really the vaccine that is going to solve uh, many of these really, really difficult issues. But the problem with the vaccine, as you know, is many people saying it may not be around the corner, may not even be possible, some are saying. But what about the, the government pushing towards this tracing and tracking system? They're going to pioneer it, it seems, on the Isle of Wight, of all places. I mean, do you think the system could work? I mean, it, it, even, even just in terms of administration, of getting it together, of making arrangements, could it work? Well, you know, there's an awful lot of wise heads um, and tech gurus kind of leading into this. Now, there is a debate as to whether or not the system should be um, the one that fears the government going for, which is effectively a centralised system that data feeds into a um, you know a central system. There's clearly you know issues there, you know concerns about privacy and how long that data is kept versus a more devolved system, i.e., it only appears you only get the alert um uh to 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 your own phone uh based on how close you've been to uh anybody else that uh, had the virus or is suspected to have had the virus um so there's a debate about the kind of system that it, that is used but look we've seen you know millions of people lean in towards the kind of national effort uh, first responders uh, the NHS um, volunteers, uh, you know, there is a sense that I think people do want to be able to move forward. So, again, the government is probably going to have to put Boris himself around this in order to communicate that message and get mass use. Uh, and very quickly, finally, then, I mean, one of the things that the Times mentions is that all of the countries that have done this similarly successfully, or most of them anyway, have used quarantine centres rather than self-isolating. Do you think we can go that far and get people to go to other places to self-isolate? Or is that just too much for the British public? I think we've seen all the way through this a real reluctance by government to 
you know, introduce uh, measures which are sort of completely anathema uh, to the way in which we run our country. You know, uh, the, the comparison with China has been made all the way through this process. And, and, you know, in the prime minister himself, a real, real desire to try and keep things as close to normal um, as possible. So I, I think the idea of kind of isolation centres would be politically very, very difficult to achieve. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.